Before we jump into today's episode, I have some exciting news to share with you. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, do you have any tips to help our team while we're conducting our equity audits? Well, now I do. Get my brand new ebook, Three Essential Questions Every Equity Team Must Ask to Conduct Equity Audits That Make Real Change. It's your team's blueprint for action. Plus, the book comes with a cheat sheet guide at the end that can help your team use it to support your work. As I've been sharing it with folks, they've asked, well, is it $14.99 or is it $9.99? And you know what? I'm making it absolutely free. (laughs) That's right. I just want to get this information into the hands of the people who need it for absolutely free. To get your free copy, all you need to do is to go to equityaudits.com forward slash ebook. That's equityaudits with an S dot com forward slash ebook. Enter your name and your best email address and I'll send it to you right away. So grab your free copy now. All right. On to today's episode. Do you want to know how your school or district can leverage science education, not just as a subject to be learned, but as a tool that young people can use to shape and transform the world around them? Or do you want to know how your school or district can set up the classroom conditions to empower young people to become active creators of scientific knowledge and to champion racial and social justice? Well, if you answer yes to either of these questions, then you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. On today's episode, I had the honor of speaking to Dr. Danny Morales-Doyle, who is an associate professor of science education at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is also the author of the forthcoming book, Transformative Science Teaching, A Catalyst for Justice and Sustainability. His research examines the potential for science education to act as a catalyst for alternative futures. His work also focuses on the social political dimensions of science curriculum, teaching and teacher education. He was a high school teacher in the Chicago public schools for more than a decade before he ever became a professor. During our absolutely fascinating conversation, Dr. Danny Morales-Doyle and I talk about the differences between traditional science education and more critical socially conscious forms of science-based education and how teachers might practically take up the latter in schools. We also discuss how education can make culturally responsive connections between science content and students' everyday lives. As well, we spend some time talking about how science teachers can create mutually beneficial partnerships with community organizers that benefits the campaigns that they're working on, but also deeply and richly connects back to science curriculum. And as we do this, we discuss how educators can create space for young people to not just be consumers, but producers of scientific knowledge that pursues broader racial and social justice aims. We talk about this and so, so much more. This episode is for you, even if you're not a science teacher. If you are a science teacher, you definitely want to listen to this and share it with your science team. If you're a principal, you want to share with all the science teachers in your building. If you're a parent, a a caregiver or whomever, this is definitely an episode you want to listen to as a former science teacher. Uh, I just really appreciate this one. And so I hope you love it too. And if you're ready to get into today's episode, we will in one second. But first, I have a special announcer. Welcome to the Racial Jessica's podcast with your host, Dr. Terrence Elgrade. He's my daddy and he's the 
best. Let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Green. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am your host. And yo, you are here for a powerful episode, and I'm super glad you're here because we have the one and only Dr. Danny Morales-Doyle in the building. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast, Danny. Thank you so much for having me, Terrence. It's an honor to be here with you. Thank you so much. Well, man, I'm super excited to, to talk about your work um, as a former science educator, uh, the work that you're doing in schools, the work you're doing at, at the university, which is so powerful. Uh, but before we begin, uh, one of the questions that I love to ask our guests to humanize them, because folks know you as, you know, a critical community scholar, as an educator. But if you thought about your life as a movie trailer, like who would be some of the people, some of the institutions, some of the experiences that shaped you in becoming who you are right now? It's a really good question. Um, if I can, I'll start in second grade. Um, so that was the year when the elementary school I attended, um, which was Martin Luther King Elementary School in Urbana, Illinois, was recommended for closure. And so this was an elementary school that was located in a historically black community, and it housed the, only, the district's only multicultural education program. Um, and so with that being the case, parents and community members fought, fought its closure really hard. Um, and so as a seven-year-old, I was out door to door with my parents to get petitions signed to keep to keep my school open. Um, and so fortunately, that that grassroots effort was successful. Um, and instead of closing the school, they built a new wing to replace the wing that was sort of falling apart around us. Um, and even though in that context, I experienced more privilege than most of my peers, um, that was an early lesson for me about racial inequity in schools um, and also about the power of communities to fight for more equitable conditions. Um, so that was an important episode in, in my formation. Um, about 10 years later, in the same neighborhood, my parents were again involved in a struggle to shut down two polluting medical waste incinerators in the neighborhood. And so, you know, at this point, I was taking high school chemistry and my dad would hand me these articles about how the incinerators were emitting polychlorinated dibenzodioxins. And he would say, you know, I didn't take high school chemistry. You're taking it. Tell me about these chemicals. And I would look back at him and say, Dad, that's not what they're teaching about us about in high school chemistry. But that was the first time I saw a potential connection between environmental justice and science education. Um, and so I guess one of the things you can probably tell from, from what these stories have in common is that my parents, uh, Loretta Morales and Michael Doyle, are, are two people that have clearly had a lot of impact on, on who I am. Um, so fast forward a little more, um, I, I went to college studying to be an engineer, um, and I met two teachers who were also graduate students, um, Jeff Duncan Andrade and, and Kay Wen Yang, and they introduced me to critical pedagogy um, and convinced me that being a teacher was a more important career than being an engineer. Um, so, so that was an important episode. Then, you know, as I became a teacher here in Chicago, um, Dave Stovall and Rico Gutstein were were mentors of mine, and they introduced me to a principal named Rito Martinez, who hired me to be one of the first science teachers at the Greater Lawndale Little Village School for Social Justice. 
And so that was a school that was founded by a community hunger strike. And so it resonated with, with those stories I told from my childhood. And so I was really grateful to, to be able to teach at that school for, for seven years. Um, and around that time, when I started teaching at that school, I also met another science educator um, named Alejandra Frausto Aceves. Um, and, and she and I have been cal- collaborating on all aspects of our lives ever since for about 16 or 17 years. Um, she's my life partner. And so along with my parents, she's definitely been the most supportive and influential uh, force in my life. So there's a, a quick run through a few decades of how I got to do the work. You know, one of the things that I, I really want to talk to you about, and I think it'll be a great way to enter into this conversation with folks, is if you could talk a little bit about traditional Western science in the ways in which it's very set up to be technical, but often apolitical and reinforces, you know, subtle colonial ways of knowing and of being and really reinserts white supremacy in a whole different way. But if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think it's so normed that people just accept it as that is science. But if you could talk a little bit about that, but then juxtapose it against like more critical, more just ways of thinking about science education and what that may look like. Yeah, that's a good way to frame it. And I think there's lots of entry points into that conversation, right? We could we could start with how politicians usually frame the goals of science education. And, and these are politicians across the sort of U.S. political spectrum um, view it as workforce development, a workforce development pipeline, um, which is vital for the economic and military prowess of the United States. Right. And so, you know, back to your point, the point that Jeff and Ernest make so powerfully and beautifully at the beginning of the art of critical pedagogy, that schools aren't failing, right. They're doing up exactly, they're doing exactly what they were always designed to do. And so, you know, when we think about a workforce development pipeline vital to the economic and military prowess of the United States, we go straight to the simple fact that the United States is a settler colonial state that was founded on two attempted genocides. And so then we can see how the fundamental purposes of science education are wrapped up with what my colleague Danny Martin might call racial projects. Right. And so I think a system of science education like that treats our children um, like like crude oil, like raw minerals to be refined, right? So it's a, science education is a process of the refining of human resources. And so in that process, some students are labeled as more valuable human resources, like the, like the gasoline fraction of crude oil and others as less valuable, like the heavier fractions of crude oil. And so I think in other words, when I think of the almost ubiquitous pipeline metaphor for STEM education, I think of this dehumanizing process of refining human resources that's happening in racialized and gendered ways. And it relies on practices and policies like tracking, like standardized testing. Um, and, and like these forms of curriculum that disconnect the technical um, from the political that disconnect um our ways of knowing from our places, um, you know, and that come across as, as not steeped in culture and not influenced by politics when they are. No, that is, that's, that's powerful. And that's a, a beautiful setup to make me think about your work, which our good friend Dakota Irby 
really put me on to and this powerful idea that you've written about and that you've practiced and practiced is around justice-centered education pedagogy. And could you talk a little bit about like what that is, but also like if, if you went into a school and that was happening, like what would people feel? You know what I mean? Like what would people, what would be the embodiment of that? What might they see? What might they experience? Could you talk a little bit about it? Sure. So when I say justice centered, that's a term that I learned from my friend and mentor, Dave Stovall. And um, I think what it suggests is that the discipline isn't at the center of the learning experience. So we're not teaching and learning chemistry for its own sake, just because that's what you do in high school. But we're after a more just and sustainable world. And to the extent that learning chemistry or learning biology or learning physics can contribute to that, then let's think about what that would look like. Right. So instead of starting with scientific phenomena, let's think about what matters in the world, what matters to students and their families, what matters to communities. And then as as content area educators, let's try to figure out in dialogue with with our students, with our communities, what our content areas might have to offer. Um, And so those are issues at the nexus of um, what matters in, in science learning and what matters in the world and, and in students' lives and communities. And so I call those social justice science issues. And so when we're studying social justice science issues, we, we also recognize that we're not going to prioritize the, the sort of corporate workforce development agenda that I talked about, but we do recognize that communities need their own doctors need their own science teachers, ethic, ethical and politically engaged engineers. And so that means that we get deep into sophisticated science practices and concepts, and we maintain really high academic expectation for students um, because, number one, we respect them as sophisticated thinkers. And number two, we know they need to be equipped to negotiate those problematic structures of the STEM pipeline if they're going to have access to the opportunities that they deserve and, and become the doctors or the engineers that our world needs. Um, and our communities deserve. So in having high expectations for students, we also recognize their unique role as producers of knowledge and culture. Uh, We know that to get the types of futures and the types of worlds that we need, um, we adults and we educators don't have the answers. And so we want to, we admire and we want to encourage the, the dynamic ways that young people interact with each other and interact with the world to produce new ways of thinking and being and relating. Um, so to get more concrete in terms of your question about what people might feel, experience, see, um, you know, that I, I always think of that classic question that middle school or high schoolers ask, which is like, teacher, why are we learning this? When are we ever going to use this? Um, and I think in a justice-centered class, you don't hear that, that question as much. You will hear it. But when you do hear it, it's welcomed as a challenge. It's welcomed as a reminder um, instead of being dismissed as a distraction or a complaint. Um, and so I think the ways that we take up science um, and to what ends we take up science, that's actually that's what we want to study. That's not what we want to take for granted. We don't take that part for granted to study the other stuff. That's actually at the crux of what we want to study. Um, and so I, I hope and I think in those classrooms, what students will feel is I, I, they'll feel affirmed and also challenged. Um, and you will see conventional science you know, conventional looking science activities in justice center science classrooms, but in ways that try to emphasize wonder, creativity, connection, and joy alongside skepticism and abstraction and, and what we think of the, as those those scientific values. So, you know, we, we take on some heavy issues, but we do so 
with hope because we have faith in our in our collective capacity to change um, the conditions in, in which we're living. Right. So in, if I'm honest, you also, you know, in in the book um, that was edited by by our friend and colleague Dakota, um, along with um, two, two more of his colleagues um, on dignity in education. Um, Dave Stovall and I write about how, you know, my first day at the Greater Lawndale Little Village School for Social Justice, a young man kind of um, within the first hour of my teaching got threw down his paper and said, I'm sick of all this social justice shit. Right. And so we still have youth resistance and we still have young people responding in different kinds of ways. And so I think in a justice centered classroom, him expressing that frustration is also within bounds. Right. Because then we have to we have to think about, like, why does he feel that way? And what is it about the pedagogy that's not matching up with the way he's experiencing it? Right. And so I, I don't mean to paint this um, utopic picture because it still is a struggle. Right. And and we challenge students and they challenge us and we affirm students and hopefully, you know, sometimes they affirm us, too. Yeah, no, that's rich. That is very rich. And I appreciate the nuance that you that you add to that, but even just this position that you're taking, like the resistance is welcomed, right? The resistance is used pedagogically, intellectually for you to start to rethink and renegotiate even the ways in which you're showing up. Right. But it's not viewed as a deviation from what it's supposed to be. So you no longer can be part of this community. So that's powerful. That's super powerful. And, you know, I, I remember when I was in, geometry i never forget i raised my hand and i asked uh my teacher i'm like why are we doing this a square plus b square to c square why are we doing pythagoras where am i going to ever use this and i remember the teacher he looked pensive looked up in the air and then he looked back he said mr green i don't know and once he said he didn't know i was like i don't even know i'm in this class i put my head down and i took that deep because i was like where am i going to use this but the reality is danny geometry is all around us it's, it is in everything we do, but he could not make the connection to the everyday realities that we were experiencing as mathematicians. And so, yes, I love you centering that question, realizing that it still may be there. It may be there less, but you're always thinking about making the connectivity to what you're calling these social justice science issues, which I think is super, super powerful. Um, you mentioned one thing in there. You said that young people are like sophisticated thinkers. And I know you uh, this idea of Gromsky, like these organic intellectuals, and you talk about and position young people as transformative intellectuals. Man, could you talk a little bit about like how science educators might set up the conditions for, because they come into the classroom as intellectuals, as transformative intellectuals, but they, it often gets schooled out of them, right? So how can science educators, what might they be thinking about to set up the conditions for that to organically emerge in a science education classroom? That's a really good question. And, and that idea of, of students, one of the things that, um, not to get off topic here, but one of the things that struck me about what you said is, this is work that teachers and students have to do together, right? Because as teachers, we also, especially as science educators, we were educated in this sort of isolationist, abstractionist kind of way. And so we, I didn't learn chemistry, despite my dad trying to prompt it, I didn't learn chemistry through social justice science issues. I learned it in the traditional reductionist Western ways, right? And so I think um, 
this is this is work that teachers have to do, and it, it's and it's an important part of teacher education because if teachers are in that moment, like you described your geometry teacher, I mean that would have caused an existential crisis for me as a teacher. Like, why am I doing this? <laughs> what is this career all about if I can't answer this young man's question, right? And so I think um, that's part of how you set up the conditions, right? You welcome young people's whole selves into the classroom. You welcome their questions and their curiosities. You recognize, to your point, that sometimes their curiosities have kind of been um, beaten out of them by the school system, before they got to your classroom. And so some of the resistance that we encounter as teachers is resistance to um, doing school differently, right? So especially from students who have been really successful, if if you want to flip the script a little bit and, and do school differently, they're going to be like, but wait, I've always done pretty well with like taking the worksheets and putting the answers and giving back, giving you back what you wanted. And so some of the resistance is is, is along those lines. But I think even that resistance we have to, to welcome because that's a natural part of, of growing up and who young people are, right? And it do, it can feel to them like we're switching up the rules all of a sudden where, you know, the teacher wants them to ask questions that they, they haven't been prompted or even allowed to ask before. And the teacher wants them to think about things that are difficult to think about. Um, you know, students sometimes used to tell me when we would get into, you know, I, I think of study as the chemistry is the study of the material world. And so, you know, we would problematize materials. Um, we would problematize where did the metals inside of your PlayStation come from um, and whose labor was exploited to get them here, right? And so students would say, why are you always ruining everything? Like you make everything, you know, point out all of these injustices that I didn't think about before. And so, you know, that's that's not an easy process. It, it can be a a liberating process, but it can also be a difficult one. And so um, I think setting up the conditions also includes being ready um, to to engage those more difficult aspects of the conversation, um, the emotion that, that's involved with it. Um, yeah, so that's that's some of what it is. And, and, you know, setting up the conditions to the earlier point about what teachers need to learn means a lot of re-education for teachers too, right? It means um, learning deeply about the communities in which we teach, especially if we're teaching in communities that are different from the ones that we come from. But it also means relearning our, our content areas. For those of us that teach at the high school level and and have degrees in, in our disciplines, um, we have to totally relearn that because of um, we were never really asked to to really understand why it matters in the world. We were just kind of told that it matters in the world and it'll get you a good job. Um, and that's not good enough for young people. So we we have to reconceptualize um, the subjects we teach too. Yeah, that is so important. Um, You know, my degree is in biology and I was a biology teacher. And I would say the criticality that I began to come into came in graduate school when I stopped teaching. And so as I reflect on my instruction and my pedagogy as a classroom teacher, there are so many ways I could have taught about race and racism and eugenics and craniology all in biology. It's like, it's all right there. Right. And so there's some powerful ways in which even the content in which I learned through critique, through questions, through curiosity could be significantly more powerful, but there is that 
that relearning and Carter G. Woodson has that quote that there are two types of education, the one they give you and the one you give yourself. And I think there is that it is important for that community education for us to have to rethink the the content in some powerful ways, which is one of the things I really admire about your work about. And could you talk a little bit about this, about how you've um, worked with community based organizations, right? Trying to understand, like, what are community based organizations working on environmentally or around science and then also connecting that to the curriculum. So it's not so decontextualized, but I see you making all these connections social justice with the social justice, but also with folks in the community who are engaged in it. So these, these solidarity components, could you talk a little bit about how that unfolds and kind of like that whole process of, of partnering in some robust ways with community-based organizations? For sure. And so I think that's rooted in, you know, growing up, my dad was a community organizer. And so I have deep respect for the work that community organizers do. I saw the impact um, and the power that organized communities can wield. Um, for justice and sustainability. And so um, when I first started working at the Greater Lawndale Little Village School for Social Justice, I had been hearing about this organization, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, um, from friends and colleagues around the city of Chicago for a while. And so now here I had a job in the neighborhood where they were doing their work. And so I just sort of humbly reached out to them and said, I just got a job down the street. Would you all be willing to catch me up on on your campaigns? Um, and, and I think you know, looking back on it, I'm, I'm impressed and amazed and grateful and humbled that they were like, yeah, sure, come on in, like sit down with us in the office. And they took the time to explain to me because I think as teachers, one thing is we have to be careful, you know, and I, and I think maybe how I got lucky or asked the right question was I asked them to teach me about their campaigns, right? I didn't come in with an agenda to say, here's what I was thinking. I said, would you teach me what you're working on? And then my colleague, Sue Nelson, and I at the school decided we were going to organize our ninth grade environmental science curriculum around their campaigns. Um, and so, you know, that started um, a really long term relationship that's now, you know, we've been collaborating in one way or another for 17 years. And, and the school and the organizers at that organization, even though I don't teach at that school anymore, the, the science department and the, and the organization still continue to work together. Um, in reciprocal ways where, you know, if the organization wants to recruit young people for their internship, they know they're welcome in the teacher's classrooms. Um, and if the teachers, if, if a scientific issue, an environmental issue pops up um, from student concerns and interests and curiosities, the teachers know they can reach out to the organizers and, and say like, hey, have you all thought about this? You know, does it connect with any of the campaigns you're, you're um, working on? And you can have guest speakers coming in to talk about those kinds of things. And so I think that's one of the most important things is that those relationships are built around reciprocity, around recognizing that um, teaching and organizing are, are different. Um, the, the constraints of formal schooling are still there. And so that's why I say I have deep respect for the work that organizers do. Some people sort of say organizing and, and teaching are very similar and they have some overlap, but they're also different. And so what being connected with community organizations allows teachers to do is to several things, but it, it informs curriculum, but also it provides an outlet for young people who get so engaged in the curriculum about these social justice issues that they have to do more. They have to get deep, more deeply engaged. They have to be more involved um, and so 
the connection with the community organization allows an outlet for that, a place to engage, somewhere they can go volunteer, somewhere they can go get internships, somewhere they can plug into already existing campaigns for justice. Um, because a, a teacher, honestly, in the scope of our work, can't really just up and start those campaigns on our own um, because we, we have our work to do in the classroom, right? And so I think that level of connection has been really important. And I've seen students go on to have careers as organizers themselves because of connections that started like that with a, a project that overlapped between the classroom and a grassroots campaign outside the classroom. Gotcha. Now that's powerful. That's powerful. And you know, one of the things that you, you mentioned there that I just want to lift up is this idea of like just radical humility, right? You didn't show up like with all the answers or show up like, this is what I want to know about the man. You came alongside trying to understand like what they were working on and then look for connections that way, which is super important. But then I hear you talking about these ideas of reciprocity, that the partnerships are not extractive. The partnerships are not like these one way. What can we do only for the benefit of the school and education? But there seemed to be this real robust reciprocity that that exists beyond the individuals who are whether they're teaching there or not. So that's that's super powerful. Um, you mentioned a couple of things about connections and you mentioned earlier about about your father, you know, asking you questions. And, you know, one of the things um, I try to always, you know, reaffirm our children that they are scientists, that they are mathematicians, even the other night uh, during bath time, it just clicked running the water. And I was like, Oh, I saw the the little water molecule stick to the side of the tub. I'm like, this is adhesion. <laughs> right. So I, uh, <laughs> telling our children like, uh, all right, put your hand in there. What happened to the water? The water's still on you. That's called adhesion. The water molecules, they adhere to a certain thing. There was another, um, uh, I, then I got some water and then I kind of pulled it out of my hand like that. And I said, look, what's happening to the water it's sticking together. I said, well, that's called cohesion. And my daughter said, like BFFs? I'm like, yeah, it's like best friends. That's exactly what cohesion is, right? And so she she's getting these ideas of adhesion and cohesion. But then I started thinking about your work. Like, all right, now how do you connect that to these larger social justice issues? And then I said, well, just like water molecules have cohesion and adhesion, social relationships can have cohesion and adhesion. And I said, well, there's we talked about them before, but then I, I reintroduced like the Black Panthers. There's a group of black people who were cohesive. They were working together. And then, right. And so now trying to use the content of mathematics, which they already are experiencing and doing to connect to this larger social justice reality. But my question to you is like for, for families, for caregivers, because science is all around us and I don't even know to what degree I can narrate all the ways, but I know when it shows up, like what can families and caregivers be doing to make some of those connections outside of the traditional schooling context that reaffirms that you are already a scientist and a mathematician? I think it sounds like you're ready to go back into the biology classroom too. Um, it sounds like a really good basis for a lesson there. Um, you know, I, I think about this a lot as a parent and, and my poor children have two science educators as parents. So, you know, they get a lot of the same kind of lessons from us. But I think um, one of the ways, so maybe, maybe a parenting story will come up, but let me start with a classroom assignment because I, th I think it actually uh, connects here. So this is a classroom assignment that I have students do 
related to families. And I've had students do this, high school students, undergrads, graduate students. Um, and I call it the funds of knowledge narrative. And so this is an assignment where they find, I will ask students to find somebody in their family or their social circle, or their community that has deep scientific knowledge um, that goes unrecognized um, by formal institutions, by society, by their peers. So someone who would not get the label of scientist, but who has deep scientific knowledge, right? And, and, I, and I introduce it by talking about my grandfather, who is a, a laborer in one of the large, infamous meatpacking plants on the south side of Chicago, right? And his job was actually to take all of the excess fat from the slaughtered animals and treat it with a strong base, um, and that's a famous reaction in chemistry. It's called saponification. It makes soap, right? So he was actually a, a worker on the process of making soap from excess animal fat in a meatpacking plant, right? Not a, not a glamorous job, and certainly with his level of education and, and his position would not have been considered somebody knowledgeable in science. Um, but the byproduct of that saponification reaction is glycerin. And so he would actually get to take bottles of glycerin home and with my mother, who was the youngest of his 11 children, he would teach her how to make bubbles um, from glycerin and dish soap and make these really beautiful bubbles. And, and she has fond memories of that, bringing her joy as a girl. And, and he would teach her the chemistry of his work. Right. And so he provides us with an example of how working class people have deep scientific knowledge. Right. And, and that knowledge can be, come from work like it did from for him. It can be passed down as home remedies through generations. Right. It can come from deep knowledge of processes like childbirth or through gardening. Right. And so I think part of teaching children to recognize their own scientific practices and tendencies and curiosities is also affirming the existence of that through their lineage and in their families and to put them in touch with those people in their lives who aren't recognized as scientists, but have those deep scientific um, forms of thinking um, that are, are natural to them and that are and also passed down through generations and that are also developed through our, our different life activities, right? And so recognizing them, those capacities in their family members is one way to start to see them for themselves too. No, that's so good. That is so powerful. You got me thinking now of all of my, you know, my family migrated up to Detroit during the first and second waves of the Great Migration to work in the automotive industry, essentially. But you got me thinking about where I grew up on the east side of Detroit. There are automotive plants probably for like four or five miles. And starting to think about all the kids who had asthma starting to think about all the the pollutants and think about the geography of those factories and what the demographics racially were of people who lived in close proximity of it. Those weren't even questions that that even emerged in any of the curriculum. But I could imagine if that was there, how many people in the neighborhood and the community had a depth of knowledge around what was happening, you know, what was, and they could have been, phenomenal pedagogues in a traditional schooling setting or even outside. Right. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, one of the things you've, you've written about, um, I was reading one of your papers around equity and what it means in like science education. And one of the things about equity is it's like everything and nothing at the same time. And there's a particular way 
in which equity is weaponized by by districts, by people politically as a veil to maintain their anti-blackness, their white supremacy, their settler colonialism, but they use the discourse of equity. And one of the things I know you've written about is like the historical and the political dimensions of it. But could you talk about, and I know some scholars are just like, you know what, I'm just moving on. I'm going to just use some other uh, terminology. But what? how do you come to understand what equity means within a science education context? And what might you offer to teachers who are, engaged in this work and want to anchor it in a deep sense of justice and equity? That's a really good question. Uh, and there are lots of scholars who really beautifully point out all of the problematics around equity. But uh, I'll pick up actually from from the point you just made about Detroit and the auto factories um, and, and connect it back with um, what we were saying about teaching children to recognize the scientific practices that they have, that their family members have to see their curiosities and brilliance um, in the ways they interact with, with their everyday worlds. Right. Um, part of our everyday worlds um, are institutions of science. So not just the practices and the ways we think about it, but the institutions of science. Right. And, and I would include the auto factories within them, right. Because those are manifestations of using science and technology um, the way that science, you know, when, when people talk about the importance of STEM, it's those sorts of economic powerhouses that they're talking about, right? And so when we teach children to look around the world and notice the enterprise of science in our world, um, it's, it, it's, it's in addition to noticing their own scientific practices, noticing their connections with nature. Um, so I live in a... It, on the South side of Chicago in a mostly Latinx community. Um, and, and right down the street, there's a chemical plant, right? And so I first noticed the chemical plant because I used in lessons this, um, this tool on the US EPA website called the toxic release inventory, right? And so you can put in your address and you can see all the major industrial polluters in the neighborhood, right? And so uh, this was number one on the list. And then, um, I got a text one day from Tomas Raski, who teaches at the high school that's two blocks from my house. He teaches chemistry there. And it was a picture of the high school baseball program. Right. So this is, um, you know, you got the varsity baseball roster on, on one page. And on the next page was an advertisement for this chemical plant taken out by the company that owns it. Right. And it explained in the ad that they produce inorganic synthetic um, catalyst for the petrochemical industry. Right. And so this plant is. A, an example of how the enterprise of science shows up in our communities, right? It's a factory owned by a multinational corporation. And this particular multinational corporation has paid tens, if not millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in fines to the EPA for all kinds of pollution, destruction, and illness around the world. And so um, I think a vision of equity as only as access, right, could very much involve my children who live down the street from that block becoming chemical engineers in that plant, right? Um, and that's not, you know, it's, it's related to the, the discourse of inclusion. That's not anything I want my children to be included in. You know what I mean? And so um, I think deeper, more historical, more political notions of equity um, would point to that plant and would ask students in, sci in their science education to question and critique the enterprise of science, right? If in chemistry class, which is required for graduation, 
right? If you don't get to ask about that chemical plant down the street, where are you ever going to get to ask those questions, right? Where, where are students ever going to be encouraged or prompted to ask questions like, hey, what are, do, what are they doing in there? Is it good for us? Is it good for our community? Is it good for the world? Who's benefiting? Who's profiting? Who's harmed, right? Why is that plant here and not somewhere else? And so, you know, if the students in my neighborhood high school are going down to, to school from the street down, going to school down the street from that chemical plant, and they're required to take chemistry class to graduate, it's, there's nothing equitable about it if they don't get prompted to ask questions about what's going on. That's good. That is, you, you, you dropping gems. That was good. That's good. Um, you said so many things in there, but I, you got me thinking. I never even thought about like the institutions of science, right? Like it's not just the practices, but the institutions of science are like, they're all around us. And you're right. Like I noticed them. I noticed that they were there. I even wondered about them. I remember from my neighborhood high school, I I have to go back and count, but there's like four blocks from there. Um, They built the prison. And I remember at like 10 or 11, I remember telling my dad, like, I know they wouldn't have done this out in West Bloomfield. West Bloomfield Hills at the time was predominantly white. I just, I know that I knew that from being 11. You know what I mean? I, I didn't have all the language and, but I knew that wasn't right, but I didn't have a place to question it in a formal school setting. Yeah. I talked about it in the car with my dad and I would always bring it up. But yeah, like if you can't even question what's happening in your own neighborhood in school of all places, that show nothing equitable. But I love this idea about, see, this is the problem with with equity being framed as like a discourse of access. It never questions or critique what you're getting access to. It, It presupposes and assumes like everybody want access to that or having access to that is something to be desired. And in many ways, it's not, right? And so I'm um, thank you for, for lifting that up. Um, yeah, were you going to say something? No, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly it. Do, I, do we want to be included in that? Is that what people deserve access to? And, and that goes for the broader goals of those scientific institutions and then also what it's like inside of them for marginalized people when they get at it, right? Because just getting access doesn't mean that it feels welcoming and comfortable and affirming once you're there, right? And so I think there's two two super problematic strains to the equity as access um, discourse um, around is that what folks deserve access to? Because I think people deserve and are asking for much more than that. For sure, for sure. You know, as you were talking about, like, if you can't even question what's happening in your neighborhood, um, like, where else can you question if you can't do it in school? And I'm curious, what might you offer to people who are educators who, one, they already feel in some ways constrained, which I often hear folks say by curriculum and like by standards that they have to follow. But also in this current political racial moment where you have book bans, you have anti-CRT policies being you got people being fired you got folks who are changing the names preemptively of their departments or or the work that they're doing you know because of what's been happening so i guess 
what might you offer to people in those contexts of how they might still engage in this work in very critical ways, but also maintaining fidelity um, to doing justice in the work, even as they work within the constructs and the confines of formal schooling and standards and things of that nature? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And it's really tough. I always feel like some kind of way answering this question sitting here from Chicago, where we don't have the same level of constraints that I know folks are experiencing in Florida and Texas and places like that. And, and I mean, but my first response is always about the importance of building solidarity and political power, right? It's, it's impossible to do this work as an island. It's impossible to do this work by yourself. And if you try and then somebody comes at you, comes after you, and you have, you have no networks of, of solidarity and support set up, then, you know, it's probably over <laughs> in terms of, in terms of you doing that work. So I think, um, that's number one. And, and, and even in Chicago, which in that context is a, is a relatively supportive and permissive space to do the work. I mean, my involvement with organizations, um, in and outside of the educational setting. So I mentioned the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization before, but the, the strength and justice orientation of the Chicago Teachers Union, right, of which I was a member for, for many years. Um, organizations like Teachers for Social Justice. Um, there are there, There's an importance to building political power. Um, we can see the political attacks on the curriculum. So, I mean, part of the answer is the only way to fight back against that is to build political power ourselves because curriculum decisions are political decisions, right? Um, but then in terms of sort of flying under the radar, I think, you know, it depends deeply on the school context and the context of parents. I, I think one thing that teachers downplay sometimes when they think about their constraints is what the surveillance really looks like. Um, in other words, I think teachers have a lot more curricular freedom than they sometimes acknowledge. Um, for better or for worse, there is not enough human power and, and humans, adults in our school buildings for the surveillance um, to really prevent teachers from doing what they think is best in their classrooms on most days. You know what I mean? So like most of the time as a teacher, having been a, a high school teacher for 11 years, most days, most periods, it's just you and the young people. Right. And nobody else really knows what's going on. in there. Right. Now, there are, you know, forms of surveillance. There are occasional observations. There are people checking on curriculum documents and things like that. So you have to be careful. But when, when the classroom door closes, um, teachers have a lot more freedom than I think sometimes they um, recognize. You know, and I understand that there's still fear and, you know, but but I think so often that that level of autonomy is not um, is not mobilized um, to students' advantage. Oh, that's good. That's good. I mean, I know we're coming uh, towards the end of our time, but I definitely want to ask you about you know youth participatory science. You know, uh, something that you and your colleagues have um, powerfully shared. If you could talk a little bit about you know what that is, some of the cycles, and yeah, talk a little bit about it. For sure. So. Yeah, I've been really fortunate to be part of, we call ourselves the Youth, Particip Youth Participatory Science Collective, and it's been a group of teachers, scientists, community organizers, and young people who have been working to do projects together um, in high school and middle school science classrooms. 
that we think of as somewhere between YPAR, Youth Participatory Action Research, and Citizen Science, right? And so um, it starts with defining a social justice science issue with students. And so I think it's important to clarify, this doesn't mean like a free-for-all in terms of, hey, class, what do you want to study? Um, because we are, as science teachers, responsible for teaching our content areas, right? And it's no justice for students if they get to college only to find out they're underprepared because they didn't really learn biology or they didn't really learn physics. Um, so there's more of a deliberate process of identifying those issues at the crux of community concerns in our content areas. But And, and that's background work we need to do as teachers. But then also working with students to see how they understand the issue first, right? And to redefine how we're explaining the social justice science issue in dialogue with them, right? And then we do what we call applying a scientific lens, right? And this is where, you know, the teacher works with students to help think about how the content area might be useful in understanding the problem, right? And an important element here is that you mentioned before a radical humility, right? And and I've sometimes called it an epistemic humility where we are honest not only about the limitations of our own knowing, but about the interconnections of, of knowing and as it applies not only to us as individuals, but also our disciplines. So in other words, applying a scientific lens means that science or chemistry or biology, whatever class you're teaching, is only one way of looking at this problem. There are lots of other ways in which we need to consider this problem. So our question is really about how can physics or how can environmental science be helpful here? not defining it as the end-all, be-all way of knowing, right? And so then in ideal situation with youth participatory science projects, what we want to do is for the class to be able to engage in authentic scientific processes to address the social justice science issue. So for example, to get back to that chemical plant in my neighborhood, um, there were students at the local high school with their teacher, Tomas Raski, who took up the project to see if they could measure the residual pollution of the plant in the soil um, at a park down the street from from the plant and from my house and from their school, right? And so once we do a project where hopefully we can work with scientists um, to do some authentic scientific projects like that, we don't just want what we learn to stay in the classroom or in students' lab reports. Um, so part of the YPS cycle is to share what we learned, um, to disseminate it, to look for opportunities to dialogue with the community and also to act on what we've learned. And, and finally, to go back and reconsider how we're understanding or framing the issue in terms of public. Gotcha. Now that's super helpful. That's that's super helpful. You know, as you were talking about, um, you know, science is just one way of knowing. You you make me wonder, like, even thinking from more like indigenous perspectives, like science and math are epistemologies. In, in some ways, they're like, they're ways of knowing and understanding the world, which Yes, I think they're different than like linear, technical, apolitical ways, but they're like ways of knowing. I mean, you think about uh, someone like Harriet Tubman. I mean, that's that's deep, profound geography, cartography, physiology. It's like, but it was a way of knowing in which she moved in the world. Um, so yeah, you got me thinking about that. Well, man, I I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and one of the ways we like to, uh, I like to end is just by asking a few rapid questions, whatever comes to mind, you can just kind of share that. Um, so does that sound good? Yep. I'm, I'm ready. All right. 
Um, so if you could have a, a nine hour flight, and I know that's a long flight, <laughs> but if you could have a conversation with anyone, they could be currently living or not living, who would you want to talk to for nine hours and what types of conversations would you want to have with that person? I think given our conversation today, I have to go with somebody who was about education for transforming the world, right? Maybe someone like Septima Clark, someone like Paulo Pene, um, you know, these are people I think of as sitting right there at the intersection of education and organizing as means to transform the world. Gotcha. Gotcha. My next question is, if you could have a concert with three artists, they could be individual folks, it could be a group, however you want to do it, and they could be anybody in the world. And you only can listen to their music in perpetuity. So these are the only three folks. They're going to do a concert for you, and you got to listen to their music. Who would those folks be? Well, that's a good question. I think just because I'm constantly amazed by what he does with language, Black Thought would have to be there. Um, and I don't know whether, you know, we could include the roots. Um I think um, La Santa Cecilia is a band who um, whose work I really admire and um, ran into the lead singer, La Marisol, in L.A., and she was super nice to my, my daughter. Um, and so I'm going to throw them in the mix. Um, and the third one, hmm, maybe, maybe a band like Oso Motley. Gotcha. Well, 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 thank you for sharing those. Um, it's honestly been a true pleasure having you on here, chopping it up. Um, before we get out of here, where can folks learn more about your work if they want to follow up with you? Uh, how could folks learn more about what you're doing? They can certainly email me, moralesd at uic.edu. Happy to share anything I've written, happy to engage in dialogue over email. I'm not really on social media. Um, but I have a book coming out in the spring um, on Harvard Education Press. It's called Transformative Science Teaching, A Catalyst for Justice and Sustainability. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Awesome. Awesome. Folks, definitely go get the book. We'd love to have you back on when you uh, release the book to talk about it. Definitely, definitely. And I, I look forward to, to using it in my own work and sharing it. Um, but thank you, Danny. I really appreciate you. This has been absolutely amazing. So uh, thank you for coming on. And folks, we out of here in the words of old Marty Marr. See you when we see you. Peace. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. Love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.